Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. This week, we're actually taking a one-week break from our series in Daniel, uh, mainly because the the slacker who's trying to teach through the book of Daniel needed another week. Um, I'm trying to get through Daniel 7 to 12 and figuring out how to put everything together has just taken a few extra weeks here, actually. It's been been quite challenging, and I appreciate your prayers if you can be praying. I've really enjoyed teaching Daniel, but it's been a very challenging book and uh, definitely taking a lot of work. So so I needed one more week where I could uh, work on a passage I was more familiar with to give me a little bit more time. And so I thought that we would take today to talk about what I'm calling ancient, present, future faith. And I know that's a mouthful, but I'm going to explain why that's so important to us, that we have a faith that is from the ancient to the present and to the future. So we're going to look at Psalm 78, the first seven verses. We could continue on through the whole psalm as it expands on the history of Israel. But we're going to read these seven verses And then I'm going to kind of lay out these different aspects of our faith. So they'll be up here on the screen. They're also in the booklet. And you can follow along in your Bible. I'll be using the New International Version. So hear now the word of your covenant God. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Uh, A poem I actually came across uh, recently, it's one that's uh, fairly well known and I had heard, Uh, it's by the Irish poet uh, Yeats, and it's called The Second Coming, and it says this, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. If you listen to Yeats' words there, you can tell he, he was living in a time where he was a little bit pessimistic about it. It's because this poem was written in 1919. It was right at the close of World War I, and as he began it, he felt like the entire world was falling apart. The center, the hub, which was meant to hold things together, could not hold any longer. It was falling apart, and as he saw it, the best people who needed conviction, who needed intensity, they had grown apathetic, and the ones who had passion were actually the worst. And... 
And the, again, in the wake of World War I, you can see why he felt all was anarchy and all was lost. But what actually happened was over time, we kind of went and we thought, you know, in the 20s, everything kind of recovered until the Great Depression and then World War II. And what eventually developed, actually, where the center did not hold was what a um, kind of a philosopher of culture and of the postmodern age named Zygmunt Bauman, he, what he referred to it as was liquid modernity. Bauman said that rather than everything being solid, it had all become liquid. It had no essential shape. Everything was formless. And in fact, he said, we've all just become vagabonds. Everyone moves so much. No one's at home. There's no relationships. There seems to be no anchor that holds anyone anymore. So he didn't even want to refer to it as post-modernity. He preferred calling it liquid modernity. So there's a question that that's the environment into which almost everyone in this room was born. That's what you live in. And it seems normal to us, but it's actually not. It's not the way most human beings have lived throughout history. So how do we live out our faith in such an environment? And for those who are here and part of our congregation, and we've been going through Daniel, you could almost imagine Daniel uttering the words to that poem, the center didn't hold. I'm, I'm off in Babylon. I've been taken away from everything that I knew. My whole life seems to be upside down. I feel like a vagabond. How does one live uh, in times such as that? Well, that's what we want to look at today. And we begin by the fact that our faith is not a liquid faith. It's a solid faith. It's an ancient faith. So notice the stress in Psalm 78, because the psalm, if you read all of Psalm 78, they're in tough times as well. The psalmist is struggling through Israel's unfaithfulness, and what he wants to do is begin by anchoring them in what God has revealed in the past. So notice you may recognize Psalm 78, 2 is actually spoken about Jesus teaching in parables. It quotes Psalm 78, 2 in reference to Jesus where it says, I'll open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. And the psalmist says, what I'm teaching you is what we have heard uh, and it's that our fathers have told us. In verse 5, he says that there were these statues that were decreed for Jacob. The psalmist is living long after Jacob, but he's saying the center of our faith is what was revealed to Jacob. He established the law in Israel, and then he commanded our forefathers. He's looking back to the ancient fathers. All of these terms are saying that the key for us in these times is to realize that we have a faith that is anchored not in what's happening today, not in what's happening last week or even in the last decade, but actually in what God has revealed to his people even millennia ago. And so the whole psalm is going to have a focus here at the beginning on teaching the coming generations. But before the psalmist can talk about the coming generations, he says, but what we're going to be teaching them is not even just what we have right now, but what's been given to us, what's come from the distant past. And so one of the things that I think the church in this modern world, when the center is not holding, the church is tempted to embrace liquid modernity. In fact, there is a church that is fairly well-known, an evangelical church that's named Liquid Church because they're trying to get into that. 
I have a, no, the church ought to be rock church. We're not called to be liquid. That's not what we're called to be. That's just succumbing and being like the world is all it's actually doing. We have a faith that is ancient. It's not new. And if it's going to be vibrant, if it's going to be alive, it doesn't need to try and be ever more hip and try and keep up with the latest trends and fashions. What it has to do is be firmly rooted in the truth that God revealed long ago. You and I are no hope and help to Babylon if we're just trying to be Babylon. We are only hope and help if we actually are rooted in something that everything around us is missing. We're only hope and help if we stay firmly rooted to the center. And this is not something just for this psalmist. This is a consistent call in Scripture. So let me show a couple other passages. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, Isaiah is prophesying at a time where Assyria is threatening to crush Israel. And Israel is in danger. And there are false prophets rising up. And here's what Isaiah tells the people they need to do. To the law and to the testimony. If they, these prophets, do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Everybody was saying, well, how do I know who to listen to? Isaiah says it's real simple. You go back to Torah. You go back to what God has already revealed to us, and if they're not speaking that, if they're not lined up with that, don't listen to them. They don't have the light of dawn. They're leading you into darkness. Paul, reflecting on the times that Psalm 78 actually writes about, because in the coming verses, if you kept following Psalm 78, it goes back and talks about Israel's history and how God had worked in their midst. Paul writes about these very same stories in 1 Corinthians 10, And he summarizes it this way. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now Paul's not saying God was just toying around with them. But he's saying, look, God bothered to record this in his word as his revelation. And he gave it to us so that we would understand, we would be warned, we would learn from what happened to Israel. And then finally, Jude chapter 1. This is a verse we've looked at many times. Jude was wanting to write just a general letter of encouragement, but the congregation he was writing to was being shaken. There were false teachers coming in, and so Jude says this in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. See, here's good news for us. We don't have to make the faith up. We don't have to figure it out. I don't have to figure out how to make it trendy or cool or anything else. What I have to do is take the faith that's been handed down and is given to me and make sure I hand it on to the next generation. That's the job, which is good. It's very well defined. It's very clear, but it is critical that we do that. It is a deposit. The New Testament in many places refers to it as a deposit that has been given to us, that we are to care for and pass on. So the first thing about our faith is we have a faith that is rooted in the ancient past. Now, again, our age loves the new and the trendy, 
and tends to despise that which is old, is outmoded, or irrelevant. It, you know, there have been studies on this. Every few years, fast food restaurants have to completely change their look. They have to change their ad campaigns or else people quit going there. But do you realize they're still serving the same slop? Right? Or you go buy a product and it says, you know, it's deodorant or shampoo and it says, same great product, bold new look. Uh, does it make my hair better because you put a new wrapper around the bottle? Is that supposed to make me feel better about it? And the answer is, in our culture, yes, we feel much better about it. But that's just silliness. Nothing's actually changed. And we only do that because we feel like, well, if this thing is older, I mean, let's be honest, in, in the iPhone world, you know, in the iWorld today, if it's older than about 15 or 20 seconds, it's ancient history. It's completely forgotten. But all of that stuff is not going to stand the test of time. Now, I will say, and this is one of the things that I've got hope for, among actually the, the younger generation, the millennials um, and, and even younger, there's actually more appreciation for things from the past. There are many younger people coming up in the church that are saying, I kind of like when we quote ancient creeds. I actually like singing some old hymns. I like doing some of this because I feel like it lets me know the church didn't start with me, that I've got some connection with things from the past. And for the young people who are feeling that way, amen, God be with you, yes, let's do that. That is good. My generation, unfortunately, was very much of the, no, let's be the church of what's happening now. That's no good. It doesn't survive. That is not how the church got here. We must always have a faith that is rooted in the truths and the practices that God revealed in the ancient past to our forefathers in the faith. We're going to come to the table in a little while. Our job is not to snazz the table up. I'm going to go ahead and tell you so you don't get disappointed. We're not going to play, let's get ready to rumble music. We're not going to shine lights or do anything weird. It's going to be broken bread and poured out cup because you know what makes this effective? The Spirit of God, not some trendy new thing. That's where our faith needs to be. It's simple, it's straightforward, and it's rooted in the past. I don't have to figure out what builds up the church of God. Jesus has already revealed it to us in the Word. We need to trust in that. And so any individual, family, or church that does not consciously strive to remain rooted in the past will fail to survive into the future. Let me say that again. Any individual, family, or church that does not strive consciously to remain rooted in the past will fail to survive into the future. Parents hear that with your kids. Grandparents hear that with your grandchildren. Hear that regarding the church. There must be a conscious striving to say we are rooted in God's ancient work. Second thing is the faith is not just ancient, it is present. Notice that the psalmist here is going to turn and say that this ancient rooting is for the purpose of a present experience of faith. 
in verse 7, at the end of what we read, he says this. He's speaking of the children who are taught all these ancient things. He says, we do this so that they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Speaking about the church being rooted in the ancient uh, beliefs and practices of the church is not some kind of historical knowledge of the past, but rather a present experience of faith. And present faith, notice here in verse 7, is that they don't forget his deeds, but keep his commands. They put their trust in God, and they keep his commands. Can anybody think of a song that says something like that? Trust and obey. Remember, our, our kids just stood up here and taught us that just a couple of weeks ago, that we trust and obey. And so Psalm 78 is recounting the ancient past, but it's not doing it as some sort of a dry history lesson. It's doing it to say, learn, hear, receive, have present faith, and have present obedience that flows from that faith. That's what it is there for. And the Scripture always calls for a present living faith rather than a mere dead orthodoxy from the past. So everything I said about it being rooted in the past is not so that we just mouth empty words. It's meant to prompt a living response to God. So here's a number of verses. Notice in Hebrews chapter 11, you remember this is the great chapter where it goes through and it talks about faith. Everything in the whole chapter is about faith and what faith looks like, but it does it by recounting the ancient past. And in verse 6, the writer to Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So notice, if I don't have faith and he's prompting present faith in them, he says, you can't please God. There's no way to have a relationship with God apart from present faith. It's not that you can pass a history quiz about what God did. It's that understanding how God has worked in those things, is it prompting present faith in you? Because if it's not, there's no pleasing God. We're told the same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Paul has spoken of the gospel and how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In verse 16, and in verse 17, he says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, did you notice this morning we sang the song Cornerstone, in Christ, you know, the solid rock I stand, that it's all, my only hope is Jesus' righteousness. Notice, that's what the gospel is about. It's about a righteousness from God. You and I are not going to work our own salvation. But how do we respond to that offer of righteousness from God? He tells us a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In the Greek, it's literally from faith to faith. He's just saying it's, it's faith all the way around. There's no way to look at the Christian life apart from a present a response of faith. And he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by what? Faith. It's not just that I begin living by faith. I live out my life by faith. This is in Habakkuk 2.4. Again, Habakkuk is speaking to the people. Everything is falling apart, and God is telling him, how do you live when everything is falling apart around you? You live by faith. 
This is what you do. And then thirdly, in 2 Timothy uh, 1.5, I love reading Paul's words to Timothy because it gives me hope because God is a God of generations. And he says, Paul's writing to Timothy. This is near the end of Paul's life. He says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith. So he's saying, Timothy, I'm reminded you have real faith. You don't just know the past. I see in you that you actively believe and trust Jesus, and that's prompting obedience in your life. But notice where this comes from. Which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. I See, I've met your grandmother, Timothy, and she's a woman of faith. And it was passed on to your mom, and now I am excited because I see the same thing in you. God is a God of generations, and you aren't just recounting the stories they've told you. You're not living off of the experience they had. You have your own true, real, sincere faith. This is what God is looking for. And so true faith trusts God and obeys God in the present. We're given this, we are planted uh, and have these roots of ancient faith that we're talking about, the ancient beliefs of the church, the ancient practices of the church, but they are given to nourish the branches of present faith and obedience. So, you know, we sang the song this morning, I Believe, which is the Apostles' Creed set to music. We often repeat the creed here in the church. We do that not just so we can repeat old words, but we need to say, this is the roots of the faith. As different as I am from the people who first recited this that lived a couple thousand years ago in a very different culture, we believe the same faith. It's been handed down to us, and I embrace it. And so God's people must always have a faith that is vitally experienced in the present, producing trust and obedience to God's commands. If I don't have that, I have a mere intellectual exercise. And that's not what the Christian faith is called to be. And so any attempt to simply recount the orthodox faith of the past apart from present living trust and obedience uh, is not faith, it's simply dead ritual. You want to know why so many congregations today have, uh, they're shrinking and dying? Because they started by just rotely counting, you know, recounting an orthodoxy that they no longer believed, which is dead. It's mere dead ritual. And then after that, guess what? They start saying, I don't really believe that anymore. Well, here's a clue for you. If I'm just getting together to do some weird old rituals, but we don't really believe it, there's not present living faith, I can stay in bed on Sunday morning. I could be watching NFL today. Being honest, why bother getting up? They wonder why. And then what they want to do is they want to change the trappings, and maybe if we get a guy strumming a guitar instead of somebody playing the organ, it's going to be dead guitar instead of dead organ. It doesn't make any difference because there's got to be vital living faith that we are embracing what was believed in the past, but it is producing present faith and obedience. And so any individual family or church that does not consciously strive to allow the ancient truth 
to nourish present faith and obedience will fail to survive into the future. If we're not rooted in the past, we don't make it. But if the past is not nourishing present faith and obedience, we're not going to survive. And then the third thing is a future faith. It's ancient, it's present, and it's future. So notice here in Psalm 78, there is a stress on future generations. In fact, there's a certain way in which it's saying you got to have the ancient past, which is experienced in the present, so that you can pass this on to the next generation. Notice how much stress there is on the next generation. In verse 4, it begins, says, we will not hide this ancient set of commands from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And then it says in verse 5 that he decreed all these statutes and he commanded the forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them. Even children who are yet to be born so they in turn would tell their children. Present generation telling the next generation. You can read it whether it's children yet unborn and then they're going to be telling another generation. That's four generations. I remind you, the exile was at least three generations because it was 70 years there for the Israelites. So the people who went didn't make it back home. Many of the even children didn't live long enough to make it back home. It was the grandchildren that were making. But here we're told four generations that are going. God's people have got to be driven by a passion to not only receive the ancient faith, and hold on to it, to not only believe it, but to pass it on to future generations. It's not enough to say, well, I would kind of like it. It has got to be a driving passion. And I can tell you, you could, with all the things I did wrong, if, if I wrote a book on fatherhood, it would have a very small preface of what I thought I did right, and it would be multiple volumes of things I have regrets for now. Okay, at 60, that's kind of the way things get to be. But I will tell you part of what would be there. My kids can tell you our house beat with a passion for them to know Jesus Christ. Our house beat with a passion that they would know the Word of God. My poor children knew when they hit high school, they were not just having little five-minute quiet times with Dad. They were reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Welcome to our house. Okay, And by the grace of God, the thing I am most grateful for in this life other than Jesus Christ and my wife is that I have four kids who are believers in Jesus Christ. Everything else is gravy. That was my constant prayer when they grew up. Lord God, I, I would love if they live close by, and they do, but if you want to send them to some far off land to take the gospel of Jesus, all I care about is that they know and love Jesus Christ. Everything else is gravy. Nothing else matters, even if one of them goes to the Air Force Academy. I'll, I'll take that, Lord. Do you, see, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. I actually had a child who wondered at one point, he, he thought that I wanted him to go to an academy. And I said, that, that's not my goal. My goal is I want you to lay hold of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. Nothing else matters. That's what is essential. And notice the scripture consistently calls us to pass the faith to future generations so that they might know, believe, embrace, 
and pass on the faith themselves. A couple of passages. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. We all hear this when we have new babies born and we do baby dedications. So many of you here have, well, many of you here don't remember, but you had these very words spoken over you when you were a baby. And many of you as parents have held your children when we've quoted these. Okay, this you know, begins, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Everybody remembers that, right? Jesus said that is the greatest commandment. Notice the very next words. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Notice it does not say swing by church and drop them off for Sunday school. Doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say make sure there's a rocking youth ministry there to save your children. What does it tell us to do? Talk about the commands with them. Impress them on the children. Mold them into their various character. How do I do that? We talk about them. When we sit at home, we talk about them when we're out on the road. We talk about them when we're lying down. We talk about them when we get up and we're walking around. We keep the Word of God central. That's what our call is, and that is what the first commandment in action looks like. But notice the same thing is here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, because it's not even just biological children. It's just passing the faith to the next generation, whether they're my kids or not. Paul says, Timothy, and remember he calls Timothy his son in the faith, and he says this, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust to, to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. How many generations do we have again? Four. And actually, we could go back one because Paul heard it from other people. But Paul says, I had it. You heard me teach other people. You were there in the midst. I want you to pass it on to others, but I want you to make sure that those others are able to pass it on to the next generation. I'll be gone, Timothy. You may be gone, Timothy. Make sure it is being passed on. The same for spiritual children as it is for physical children. We're always thinking about at least the fourth generation. I challenge you. I encourage you. God gives promises to a thousand generations. You need to be thinking that way. I can track back that we're now here with my grandchildren. I can track back at least five generations. And my thing is not, well, five generations, we're one beyond that. It's that's five, God, you promised a thousand. I got 995 to go. I am looking for you. Be faithful until Jesus returns. I want to know that my family is serving you generation after generation after generation. And it is no different for this congregation. I am so grateful to be part of this church. I, I can't stress what a blessing it is that I've got roots that go back 42 years in this church. I am glad that some of you I knew when I was a mid, and I've been pastor here for almost 28 years now, but my design and my goal is, should Jesus tarry, and I believe he is going to, when I am lying cold in the grave, please, dear God, I want this church to be a force 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. It's not about, I don't care if anybody ever remembers my name. I want to be, John Calvin was buried in a pauper's grave in Geneva. Nobody knows where John Calvin lies. Because he said, I don't matter. I'm going on. What matters is that the faith goes on. And so his work has gone for hundreds of years right down to the present. Friends, that's what needs to be our hope and our prayer for this congregation. Is not just 2021, not just 2022. What's going to be happening here in 2050? And in 2100, what I want to happen here is people to say, that church has been on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ as long as I can possibly remember. And we can say since 1967. That's how long it's been on fire. Since we got planted. But friends, that is not easy. Ask yourself how many congregations you know that have been around 50, 60, 70 years and are alive with the presence of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. I wish the answer was a lot, but it's not. Because if you're not passionate, passionate about getting the gospel to the next generation, it will not happen. The baton will drop. And if the baton drops, you lose the race. So the faith has to be passed on to future generations to survive. The roots of the ancient faith are given to nourish the branches of present faith so that it can bear fruit of future faith. And you got to have all three. No roots, you don't survive. No branches, you don't survive. But the goal in the tree is not that it looks pretty, it's to bear fruit. It's to bear fruit for the future. And so God's people have to always have a faith that looks to and builds for the future, making sure the faith is handed down to future generations. This is something that Y'all may laugh at this. I've spent the last 10 years regularly praying about what's going to happen in just a few years when you don't need a very old coot, which is what I'm going to be, up here being the main guy preaching. We need to be thinking about that. The elders have already had some conversations about that because what matters is that the baton is handed off and it's handed off well. That's got to be the passion of for the congregation. So any individual family or church that does not live with a passionate commitment to see the faith passed to future generations is radically disobedient to the heart of God and is irrelevant to the building of God's kingdom. You may be on the front cover every week of the Church of What's Happening Now magazine, and it doesn't matter. You're irrelevant to the actual building of the kingdom of God. And we want to be part of what's going on with that. So, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? I wanna look at two aspects briefly and we will come to the Lord's table. Number one, how do we develop an ancient, present, future faith personally? What do you do this week? What do I do this week personally? The first thing is realizing a healthy faith has all three aspects, ancient, present, and future. So as an individual believer, I have to consciously seek to develop in all three areas of my faith in my life, or it's going to be immature and deformed. 
So it's not an option that, well, I don't really know what went on in the past with the church. Well, you need to know what went on in the past with the church. One of the reasons we keep repeating heresies is because we haven't learned what's gone on. I hear people get excited about stuff, and I'm like, you do know that was condemned at like three different councils, right? I mean, that's like a really bad idea. We've tried this, and it always ends up in the ditch. Okay, so we have to do it in all three. So as an individual believer, am I learning and building upon the ancient teachings uh, of, and truth of the faith? Number one place this is going to begin, we ought to all know, is the Word of God. Am I in the Scripture? I am going to labor, and so are the elders of this congregation and the young men that are being raised up to be pastors in the future. Simeon and David, they're going to labor all of us, to teach the Word of God, teach it accurately, teach it with passion, teach it so that we can learn and grow. But friends, you and I must individually be in the Word of God. Are you digging in every day? You're responsible. The Bereans were congratulated that they didn't just believe Paul, they tested Paul out. If Paul is happy that they tested him out, I'm going to be very happy because I am not Paul. Okay, please check me out. Please verify that what I'm saying is the word of God. Are you digging into the scripture? I want to encourage you. We've tried giving you other tools. We've got the catechism that is out there that I labored a long time working and writing. I'm actually right now in my quiet times working through the catechism. I've had it memorized, but sometimes it gets a little bit rusty. And I'm working through and looking at it. And we've given all kinds of Bible verses to understand the essential elements of the faith. If you want to learn church history, we did a class a number of years ago. Uh, Jim and Beth and Nellie and a number of other people were here regularly. Every month we were going through church history. We did that for like four or five years. You can go to the website. You can download it. You can learn about the history of the church. I also want to encourage you, pay attention to older hymns and creeds that are part of our worship. Learn with what we're singing. Don't just recite a creed. Say, how is it that we were able to summarize the faith down into this? Pay attention to the hymn. This morning, I took my grandson, Josiah, because we were singing the song Cornerstone, and I realized at his age, he probably didn't know what it was. So I said, buddy, do you know what a cornerstone is? No, Papa, I have no idea. Okay, well, let me describe what a cornerstone is and why we're singing that. Okay, are we learning from what we're doing? All of that's part of the ancient faith. Secondly, as an individual believer, am I experiencing and growing in present trust and obedience? Because you could download and know church history better than me, critique what was done in the catechism, memorize more Bible verses than me, be able to quote Greek and Hebrew better than I can, and if it's not producing living trust and obedience to Jesus Christ, it's not faith. It's just intellectual dead orthodoxy. And there are people out there that can do that. I, uh, I listened to a lecture from a guy named Walter Kaiser one time, and he said when he was a young man, he sat in a lecture where a teacher went through and taught the book of Romans. He said it was one of the most outstanding presentations of the gospel as it's laid out in the book of Romans I'd ever heard. And one of the guys in the class raised his hand and said, do you believe that? And the guy said, no, I don't believe it at all, but Paul believed it. That's just dead orthodoxy. That, that's insanity. This guy spent his whole life learning it and then said, no, I think Paul was wrong, but I just want you to know what Paul believed. That's not the goal. The goal is present, living 
faith. And so, and that is meant to produce personal trust and obedience. We have many in the church today that I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to obey. And as we're studying Daniel here, being in exile means, let's go ahead and accept it, we're going to be increasingly unpopular. Okay? People are not, in general, rushing up to the Christian faith and saying, hey, this sounds really awesome to me. They're in general saying, this sounds oppressive. What's wrong with you people? You can't believe that that old book tells me how to live now. Uh, Yeah, I can. I actually can believe that. I do believe that. And I'm going to hold to that. And it doesn't matter whether it's popular or not. I'm going to obey. That's my call and my task. And so the sense of being in exile is really going to be revealed and experienced the most, not just that we know what went on, but that it's actually working out in present trust and obedience because that's where we walk counter to the culture. And then the third area, personally, as an individual believer, am I laboring to build for the generation to come? Parents. I've said this many times. I'm going to say it again. On Judgment Day... Who is Jesus going to ask about discipling your children? If your answer is uh, Brett, no, he's not. He's going to ask you. He is going to ask me, did I tell you this? And I'm going to say, cue up September the 12th, 2021. Yes, I did tell them that. And we provided catechism. We provided good children's ministry to encourage, but it was all so that you do it yourself at home. If you are a parent, you are responsible to disciple your children. Teach them the Word of God. Teach them how to pray, how to worship, to encourage them. But even if I'm here and I'm not a parent, I don't have young kids at home, I don't generally invite my 30-something-year-old children over and say, sit on Daddy's lap and I'm going to read a Bible story to you. Am I praying, serving, and giving to help the church grow strong into the future, or am I merely consuming a religious product for personal edification? What are we discipled by our culture to be? Consumers, right? I mean, this afternoon, millions of American males who get out of breath walking to the kitchen to get nachos and a beer are going to scream and say, we are beating these guys. Yeah, no, no, you're not. The guy that works out all week, he's beating those guys. Now, I'm starting to meddle, I know. But, see, we're consumers, not the church of Jesus Christ. We're not consumers. We're all engaged in this together. Are we Are we? working and serving and giving to do that, or am I just being a consumer? It's a question for me to ask. So I want to encourage you, ask the Spirit to help you grow in these areas. And then quickly for the church, and we'll come to the Lord's table, a healthy church. And I, and I want to say this because in our liquid culture, many of you are going to move before you die. You're going to be part of other congregations. And so part of what I want to do as a shepherd is I want to help you find a good church. A good church 
it's, it's not an issue of if it's trendy and what it looks like and how cool this and that and the other is and whether the guy up front's got ripped jeans on and dear Lord, I hope he doesn't have skinny jeans if he's my age. A healthy local church is rooted in the ancient beliefs and practices of the church. It is developing uh, present trust and obedience. It's stirring it up, and it's laboring to build for generations to come. And if you don't sense all three of those things, walk right back out the door. That's not where you want to be. It may be cool. It may be what everybody's talking about. It's irrelevant to the building of the kingdom of God. Much of what really is truly relevant for the future, nobody's paying attention to today. That's always the way it is. So am I doing that? Now, each individual believer tends to prefer one or the other of these aspects. Some people really like ancient practices and stuff. Some people really like a stress on, you know, present things. Some people really like talking about eschatology and the future and all that. But you need a church that is all three. That's where health is found. And so I want to encourage you right now, even before you go, as a church member, here is part of your job description, okay, is you have to demand that the men who are shepherding this congregation understand and grow in all three areas. You do have a responsibility to do that. You have a responsibility, and I am grateful that I have had many people through the years tell me you stepped on my toes this morning, but if you stop doing that, I'm going to get very unhappy and you're going to hear about it from me. Well, thanks be to God. I am grateful for that. You must demand that we labor hard in all three of these areas and don't get off into a ditch. And if you move on, never settle for a congregation that develops one or two and then skips the other. And I want to encourage you, be praying this week for this congregation. We want to do all three. And we want to do all three with passion, with excellence. We want to do all three to the glory of Jesus Christ. Ancient roots, present trust and obedience, and bearing fruit into the future. So we're going to come to the Lord's table now. And I want you to notice, if you pay attention, you should be aware all three of these aspects are present every time we come to the Lord's table. Because what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to relate back to what God has done in the past. We're saved by what God did thousands of years ago. But we're praying for the Holy Spirit to work in us in the present. This isn't just a ritual. It's that the Holy Spirit would work present trust and obedience and, and empower me to walk out this week in obedience to him. And then we all know we're going to end the words in just a moment that we do this until when? Until he comes. Because this is reminding us every week, the goal that we're looking forward to, friend, is, is when I'm sitting there and Jesus is saying, welcome to my table. That's what we're looking forward to. It is ancient it is present, it is future. So, I want you to hear, if you are part of God's people, you are trusting by faith alone that Jesus Christ is your righteousness, hear God's invitation as we come to the table. Come, all you who are thirsty, 
come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Because, friends, it's by grace. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, for He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will freely pardon. If you have turned to the Lord and you believe and you have received his pardon, we invite you to come to this table. If you are not a believer, if this is all just kind of an interesting ritual and you couldn't find anything better to do on a Sunday morning, then I want to tell you you're not to eat. And I know that's not popular in our culture either. But this is a meal that states, when you take the bread and you take the cup, you are proclaiming, I believe the gospel, that I am saved by the work of Jesus Christ and nothing that I do. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you have your little packets, go ahead and pull them out and you can peel back. If you forgot to grab one, we have some right at the back of the room and you can grab one. But let's go ahead and get ready as we are going to come to freshly eat and drink and receive the grace of our God. Father, you are the eternal God. Before you had created the world, you chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in your sight, predestining us to be adopted as your children through Jesus Christ. And all of this was in accordance with your own pleasure and will and is to the praise of your glorious grace. We thank you for calling us and for making us your people. And we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus, who took our flesh to work salvation for us, whose body was broken, that we might be saved, healed, and restored. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, it was in you that we were chosen 
and it was through you that we were saved. Though we were aliens and strangers to your people, we are now fellow citizens of your kingdom and members of your household. In you, we are being built together to be a holy temple, that our, and it is through you, uh, through you and your present intercession that our worship is pleasing to the Father. All of this has been accomplished by your blood, which was poured out upon the cross for us and for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. If you can, let's stand together, and we're going to cry out to the Holy Spirit for his present ministry and to seal us for the future. Holy Spirit, it is through your present ministry that we have been regenerated and united with our Lord Jesus Christ and the church. You dwell in us, and you are the deposit guaranteeing our full adoption and inheritance. And it is through you that we are kept until the day we see our God face to face as we sit and eat at his eternal wedding feast. O Spirit of God, root us in the ancient faith. Work in us in our own day. Come upon our community, convicting us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, and drawing many to our Lord Jesus Christ. O Spirit of God, we cry out for revival in the church, for awakening among the lost, and reformation in our culture. Lord, we ask for this in our time and in our place. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would renew our vision of eternity, that we might endure through our light and momentary afflictions, looking forward to the eternal weight of glory that you are working in us. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to you, O Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. And God's people say, Amen. Now may the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. And may you live to see the prosperity of God's people. And may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon the church of the living God. Go forth full of the blessings of God and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.